Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our ninth episode of Dirty Drinks today. How are you, Dr. Sterling? I am doing well, Sarah. How about yourself? I'm doing well, too. Can you believe we've had nine episodes so far? I can't believe it. I can't believe that, and I can't believe it's already almost September. Where does time go? Yeah, I saw you were starting to uh, retweet some football things, so that season's coming. Yeah, it actually started, but we're not going to talk about this past weekend. So uh, we'll see if things get better from here. Uh, I don't know, but we will we will see. That sounds good. It's all way over my head. I am not a sports person at all. So, Well, I follow it a little bit too closely. And so sometimes it actually feels like it mortally wounds you. Although with the last <laughs> few years, I think we've kind of grown accustomed to seeing our score being less than the opponent. So it still hurts. But, you know, it doesn't hurt quite as bad as when we were good and then we lost, I think, because we were expecting to win. Gotcha. That makes sense. Well, I am super excited for our special guest today. We have Miss Shelley Swedhelm on with us, and she is the Executive Director of Emergency Management and Biopreparedness at Nebraska Medicine. She runs the Nebraska Biocontainment Unit. And she's also program director of NETEC, which is the National Emerging Special Pathogen Training and Education Center. So welcome, Shelly. Well, thanks for having me. Yes, welcome, Shelly. That's awesome. That's a lot of big words that we're going to have to dive through and figure out what most of those mean. I'm sure I left out some of the hats that you wear. (laughs) A few. A few. <laughs> so would you like to kind of give us a background of where you're from and why you got into medicine in the first place and um, a little bit of how you got into the role you're in now? Sure. So I've always been a diehard Nebraska girl, grew up on a farm in Northeast Nebraska, and then worked at the local uh, community hospital there while I was in high school uh, between uh, helping my uh, parents and siblings on the farm. Uh, So had a really uh, strong sense of knowing I wanted to be a nurse from when I was young. And I actually have an older sister who is a nurse also. And so had a lot of good role models. That's awesome. So how did you get into the emergency planning part of what you do? Yeah, so kind of a Long story short, you know, I started out my career as an ER nurse. So uh, my husband and I have graduated four times together. He's a nurse also. Um, So we were high school sweethearts and then went to nursing school and then got our bachelor's and our master's at the same time. Uh, So uh, came to Omaha from our small, you know, town up in Northeast Nebraska and and just, uh, you know, dove right in. And when we uh, finished school, because I had uh, started uh, working clinically in the emergency department um, and he worked in ICU, so that made it easier to get a job when we uh, finished school. So that was sort of how we both kind of merged our our plans, you know, for the initial years of our career into uh, our uh, designated uh, specialty groups. 
That's awesome. That's awesome. And then how did you evolve from an ER nurse into what you're currently doing now? Yeah, so I did ER and flight nursing and really loved the uh, leadership too. So began to uh, raise my hand, uh, did some charge nurse work in the emergency department. Then I uh, decided to take a leap of faith. There was a manager position in the recovery room open, what called the recovery room at that point. Now it's called the post anesthesia care unit. So I did that uh, for about a year and a half, two years, and then the OR director decided to leave. So they said, will you do that part interimly? So um, I always said, you know, I've never been an OR nurse, but I just surrounded myself with really uh, strong clinical folks. And I said, you know, if I ever had to do a case, I would say, if you see it here, pick it up. If you don't, I'm not sure we have it um, from an instrument perspective, but <laughs> regardless, um, so I did that for several years and through the merger here, um, Clarkston and university and have been here my whole career. So almost 39 plus years now. Um, so long story sort of short again, we, you know, I then took over the emergency department, uh, added emergency management to that, had the trauma program for a period of time. And when I had the emergency management piece, there was this small unit that Dr. Phil Smith in the early 2000s after 9-11 decided to use some funding to create this place called the Nebraska Biocontainment Unit. So for nine years, we begged anybody to really know we existed and uh, did a lot of work with our staff uh, to train, uh, protocols, policies, exercises, you name it. And then in 2014, uh, the U.S. State Department heard we had this unit. And that's when Ebola was starting to evolve in West Africa. So they came for a site visit. And within a month, we had uh, our first patient with Ebola virus disease here. So I remember having conversation with our leaders about, should we do this? Should we not do this? And um, I remember saying, and Dr. Phil Smith was there too, and, and we both said, you know, these are our fellow Americans, so they need us. And if we've trained and exercised for nine years and we don't raise our hand here, then this has all been for naught. And so the rest is history, so to speak. So that lended itself to really then getting some early uh, grant funds to uh, put on some CDC courses, uh, the National Emerging Special Pathogen Training and Education Center came out of the three hospitals in the nation who successfully cared for patients with Ebola uh, back in 2015. And then from there, lots of other grant opportunities. So ICAP and uh, other CDC funds, as well as other ASPR funds. So that's sort of how it began and evolved. And I feel like we haven't quit running since all that began. Yeah, so let's go back to the early 2000s. So we were post 9-11, and then there started to be envelopes containing crazy white substances showing up at uh, various people's offices. So people started to get concerned, people I mean in terms of people that provided funding for things, with needing some kind of a bioterrorism type place or approaches or how do we do this or whatnot. And I don't know when you got involved with Dr. Smith, but obviously it was very visionary to develop 
this kind of a facility. There wasn't anything like this really when you guys did this. And so how did you guys come together and figure out how to do something that worked when you didn't have any idea what was necessarily going to work? Yeah, the only uh, thing that existed in the United States was really Emory University had a two bed unit and that was because they were across the street from the CDC. So the CDC had funded them for a long time, you know, for the potential uh, lab failure, you know, somebody got a needle stick or something like that, or, you know, became uh, ill with the pathogen they were working with. So uh, in 2006, uh, a very large uh, consensus conference was done uh, with European countries and, and others uh, to really start looking at how it evolved and some consensus about practices and biosafety and other things came out of that. So from there, you know, there was just a lot of work to continue the trend of, you know, making sure that we were prepared and ready um, should something happen and we be called upon. So it was also after the monkeypox outbreak in the Midwest, there were like 70 cases in the Midwest. Um, yeah, there was the, the anthrax scares, although anthrax is not something we would typically put in the unit. Um, so we would, you know, there's, there's medical countermeasures for that now. So um, these are more of the high consequence pathogens where there might uh, exist uh, you know, high mortality, morbidity, and then um, limited medical countermeasures to support um, the care of these individuals. And I think you're being a little bit modest because you guys were at the forefront of developing a lot of these things, weren't you? Yeah, we uh, definitely did a lot of work to uh, put in place a lot of the practice uh, strategies and systems uh, for safety. Um, I often said it would have been nice during Ebola to sort of lift those up and place them in hospitals. You know, it was really a horizontal hierarchy, um, developed a lot of protocols for PPE, donning and doffing, personal protective equipment. Um, those were helpful actually to many people when we had H1N1 in 2009. And uh, certainly this time around too, as we were quickly uh, coming up with what the protocols were and then pushing it out and, and doing training. Um, as quickly as we could nationally through NETEC, but also here locally and regionally. That's awesome. Uh, so we talked to Dr. Hewlett a little bit about the MBU and her role in it. Um, and I know you said you did, um, you were called out for Ebola and then most recently, obviously COVID, um, you helped treat some of the very first uh, COVID infections that were on U.S. soil, which is super awesome. Uh, have you guys been called out for any other outbreaks? Uh, since COVID, no. Um, so we did just finish up a three-day federal exercise uh, with the uh, scenario of it being Nipah virus. So a group of Americans being brought back hypothetically from uh, Bangladesh. So Nipah virus, uh, scary pathogen. <clears throat> so no great uh, medical countermeasures, obviously, and a pretty high uh, mortality rate of 50 to 70%. So that was a little concerning. So that was like bringing 20 people back for a quarantine exercise. And then, um, you know, one of the things I was most worried about as we were working through this exercise, uh, because we have the National Quarantine Center here on campus, 
is that if that truly happened, we'd really want to do a lot of conversation um, well before those 20 arrived about how we're getting them moved back out, some of them, <laughs> to other places, because uh, yeah, it's one of those category A pathogens where we'd have to, um, you know, autoclave all the waste and, you know, just a, a very concerning pathogen and it would be very labor intensive too. So what, uh, you'd mentioned the National Quarantine Center, which is an amazing facility. Um, what all can that be used for and who actually kind of controls who goes there, et cetera? And that's completely separate from the biocontainment unit, correct? And you'd care for different people in both of those places. Right, so the quarantine center is quarantine. So it's separating people who are still healthy, uh, but who have had an exposure to a unique or novel pathogen of significance. So you're just monitoring and watching them for symptom onset, whether that be a respiratory pathogen 14 days or whether it be a viral hemorrhagic fever type pathogen like Marburg or Ebola or loss of fever, which is more like 21 days. So um, the quarantine center, interestingly enough, and then oh, let me just finish the, the definition then. So the biocontainment unit is for isolation. So those who are symptomatic and ill would go to the biocontainment unit <clears throat> who meet the case definition of the pathogen, the incubation period, et cetera. So in care of the, the COVID folks uh, from the Diamond Princess cruise ship, it got a little wonky and messy, right? Because some of these people were not very sick. Um, mild symptoms uh, were certainly able to be safely cared for in an outpatient environment, which the quarantine unit was. So we sort of fudged and blurred the line so that we weren't admitting people to the hospital who really didn't need to be admitted, but we had to monitor them closely, obviously for symptom onset. So um, did some outpatient, you know, watching, looking for, for um, uh, you know, symptoms and, and laboratory changes. And some of these folks obviously uh, needed other uh, monitoring, uh, humidity levels, other things like that, that just were required for basic uh, care maintenance. So um, we fudged the lines a little bit, but typically quarantine should be quarantine. It's not a clinical care service or support area. It's just for really monitoring. And we do have um, all of our uh, biocontainment team is cross-trained quarantine. But we do have a couple of medical directors uh, who are focused on quarantine and then a couple that are also focused on biocontainment units. But they, you know, we're all part of the same team, so. That's very cool. I keep thinking back to the movie Outbreak. <laughs> that was That's actually just movie. on yesterday, believe it or not. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So going so, back, let's go back in time a little bit to the when you guys got the call that you were getting somebody that had Ebola. Um, Ebola was something that obviously had, had not been in a human on U.S. soil. Right. Um, and here you are taking care of them in a hospital that has lots of other people and patients and everything else. And you've built this unit, we've trained for nine years and everything else. And I know everybody was pretty confident that things, you know, we're, we knew how to do this, but I mentioned, imagine the level of anxiety was incredible. Uh, and to know that this pathogen, a person with this pathogen was going to arrive at some point in time, whenever the plane touched down, that had to be incredible. Yes, 
<laughs> um, you know, I, Dr. Phil Smith and I had many conversations uh, as we sat in the incident command area, um, you know, anticipating the arrival of the first person um, doing just-in-time training with our team. As a physician and nurse leader uh, partnership, it was, uh, yeah, a lot of strain and a lot of stress on us uh, knowing that, you know, we're accountable <laughs> um, for doing this. For, um, but we had a lot of confidence, obviously, in our team. Um, but it, it was, um, yeah, I, I don't know what more to say about it. Other than, you know, I'm glad that's behind us, um, <laughs> but um, we certainly um, had a lot of conversations and heart to hearts about, you know, I hope we made the right decision. You know, I knew we were making the right decision for the individual because they needed our care and we're still good friends with him today. Uh, Dr. Rick Sacra, who um, was quite an extraordinary physician, you know, doing really benevolent work over there. And so it was really important for that path of contribution in life uh, to see him uh, get discharged uh, eventually when he finished his course of care. But um, yeah, you know, when we trained and exercised for those nine years, we always talked about uh, these viral hemorrhagic fevers and particularly Ebola, which at that time there was no vaccination and now there is. Um, but back then we used to say, well, gosh, this would be the worst case scenario pathogen ever, right? It only, it's highly infectious, not highly contagious, but it only takes one viral particle to you know, you know, go astray or awry. And, um, you know, so the safety protocols, you know, how we work together to make sure we were watching each other closely, um, constantly uh, speaking up, you know, it's the culture that we would hope to make sure that is in place everywhere in healthcare these days. But um, yeah. So that brings up a really great point, Shelly. And I know you, have a little bit of passion for leadership as well. Um, can you talk about the importance of working on a team like that? And, you know, watching each other's back is not necessarily a bad thing. Like I'm not picking on you, it's for your safety type deal. Yeah. You know, I think um, anyone who knows me, I think they always like, oh gosh, here she goes again. I think, you know, you have this emergency preparedness mindset, right? Like even my kids and my grandkids are like, Yes, grandma, I used, <laughs> I practiced how to get out of my bedroom. <laughs> like, right. Severe weather, you know, they're always in the know about what's going on and what their plan is. Um, but anyway, um, I think, you know, part of that too, it's just like, I, it's important to have a team who really um, doesn't necessarily think like that, but always has that safety culture piece you know, as a part of everything they do. So always thinking about what could be, what could go wrong and mitigating for what could go wrong, um, really practicing. I can't say enough about practicing, you know, speaking of sports analogies, you know, I often have said you practice like you play, right? If you don't practice hard, it's gonna be really hard to perform in the moment of truth. Um, and I think that that has totally uh, been a mindset that we've had and has been something that's helped us all be successful. 
Yeah, it's so true. So true. Now, another big part of your team outside of caring for patients in either the quarantine center or the biocontainment unit is education. You guys have done a ton of education locally, nationally, internationally. Um, so um, can you tell us just a little about, about those efforts? Sure. So in mentioning earlier about the National Emerging Special Pathogen Training and Education Center, so we've done just a phenomenal amount of resources and uh, just-in-time training information. We've got webinars that we've done all through COVID. Uh, we've also done site visits prior to COVID where we took a team from the three hospital organizations, Emory Hospital in Atlanta, Bellevue Hospital in New York, and then here, Nebraska Med, UNMC. And we went out and we really did site visits. We, we always did the nine other regional treatment centers across the US, but we did others where we would go in, we had 10 domains and we would really assess carefully, um, you know, how their processes were put in place. We were non-regulatory, non-punitive. So that was really nice to be able to go in with that sort of uh, mindset and they see us really as being there to help them, right? Move their readiness to the next level. So that's sort of NETAC. And then um, we have a robust uh, website with a lot of uh, great resources on it. We always told people to steal shamelessly and adapt it. Don't start from scratch. So go out there and get whatever you want. Uh, we've also had a role in region seven here, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, to really um, bolster the special pathogen capabilities here. So we have what's called the concept of operations at the state level and then at the region seven level. So we work a lot with the state public health leaders with various coalitions and emergency medical services who move these folks so that we can plan and prepare for how to get them safely uh, to the level of care that they need should they be identified. So we do a lot with identify, isolate and inform the three eyes. Um, so if you never identify it up front, then, then that's a problem um, because then all sorts of bad things happen. So really getting the identify right is key. And so that's part of the education there. And then, um, oh gosh, the training simulation and quarantine center is another uh, training group under the Global Center for Health Security. And we've been doing the National Disaster Medical System training for infectious disease. And we also have the uh, public health service folks too. So prior to COVID, they were all coming. Then we moved to more of an online format for them. Um, two years ago, we went and did a training of about 1,800, uh, 2,000 of these folks in Atlanta over a few day period of time and did a level um, bio and chem, uh, level PPE use and uh, hands-on stuff because we really feel strongly that hands-on stuff uh, it's very helpful to really applying the learning. So they did some upfront modules and then we did the hands-on. So, you know, education and training is a part of everything we do. Yeah, I agree. It is really nice when you go over and do the training again. You haven't done it for, you know, a little while and then you, you do it again. You're like, oh yeah, that's how I do that. Because <laughs> it's, it's easy it's to forget. And not somebody's there to like really uh, say, oh, Dr. Starlin, you know, stop. Let's back this up and yep. Yeah, if I'm ever in doubt, I just do hand hygiene because it has to be next somewhere. That's, <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> you never do that too much. <laughs> yeah. 
You've worked with the IP team for too long, Dr. Starling. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I put I put more hand hygiene on gloves there than I've ever done before in my life. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So uh, we always ask all of our guests, what is the craziest thing you've ever seen in your role? Do you have any crazy stories? You have to have something. You were in the ED, you were in the PACU, you probably had all kinds of stuff. Oh, yeah. You know, some of that really is not not novel or unique, though. You know, it's like <laughs> every day in the ER, right? Right. Um, yeah. Um, you know, I think one of the one of the uh, most interesting parts to me was during care of one of our special pathogen patients who was an adult. Uh, his parent called and said, you need to take away his social media, his, his uh, phone. I go, mm, he's an adult. I'm not going to take away his social media access. <laughs> it's like, I'll let you have that conversation with him. Um, but, you know, it's just, yeah. I, there's honestly, in a 39-year career, it's hard to even begin to, I, sh I should have kept the log over time. <laughs> But, you can publish that book, Shelly. I know, right? <laughs> Do you have anything that you are reading or binge watching right now? <laughs> um, you know, I read a lot of uh, medical articles that are pushed my way just so I'm up to date and relevant on what's happening, you know, with vaccine or what's happening with Delta variant. Um, I uh, read a great article uh, last evening what was it called? It was called Accountable Freedom. And it was uh, just a, you know, interesting, you know, perspective of how, how does that look nowadays? You know, I think we've got so much conversation on both sides of the vaccine strategy, both sides of the max are using math strategy that it's like, can't we all just be accountable and, and do the right thing uh, for the other people that we are near, right? Whether that's in the workplace, whether that's at home, whether that's in the school or wherever it is. So we talk a lot about accountability, but um, where do we fit that into what's doing the right thing today um, and not make it political, so. Yeah, that certainly yeah. sounds interesting for sure, for sure. Now you, um, obviously in the circles that you're involved in, you know, you know, just kind of seeing where do we go for the future? I mean, if we look at our recent past, you know, we had SARS and we had H1N1, we've had MERS, which, you know, maybe isn't gone away. We've had Ebola, you know, the monkeypox you talked about, and now uh, COVID. Um, you know, were these things happening in the past and we just didn't have your big eye where we didn't identify them? Or is the world just more global now and, and uh, uh, crowded and conditions have changed? And now we're going to start seeing these more and more and more. And so there's obviously not a lot, all, all facilities in the country that have the, the capabilities that a place like uh, Nebraska Medical Center has and, and that your team works at. So what's the future look like and how can everybody kind of think about preparing for this? As, as you mentioned, you have to identify and isolate, which I think is what you're teaching and, and preaching to the, the hospitals that don't have these facilities. But if we're gonna see this more and more, uh, what, if, what do we gotta do? Yeah. 
So I think, you know, it, like you said, we've become a really global society. So you can move from any country to the United States within 10, 12 hours. Um, I think this was brought home for me really blatantly as I traveled to Lagos, Nigeria a couple times to do education and training with uh, their healthcare providers over there which was a very rewarding experience, but you can just see, you know, when you're flying on a plane from there back to Atlanta, you can see how quickly uh, moving loss of fever or monkeypox from, from that country where it's pretty prevalent um, back here to the United States. So it is really key to get the identified correct. And we may not know the pathogen, right? At least initially, but we should know that there's symptoms here. There's a fever rash cough. We should be able to get them uh, masked quickly. And then we should be able to couple that with the travel screen and then look, right? Go see what's currently happening in Guinea or what's currently happening in, in some of these other places where some of these um, pathogens are. I think those to me are maybe not even as worrisome as what the potential uh, next variant of this COVID may be. Um, or what is the next uh, pandemic uh, that might happen? Um, you know, there's constantly emerging threats that we keep watching. Um, it takes a lot to get it to a pandemic level, but I, I worry, have we learned anything? You know, have we done anything more um, to hardwire things or have we gotten to the point of where public health and science is overtaken um, with politics. Um, so there's a lot of things I worry about and it's mostly the novel pathogen that we don't even know of yet. Um, I think that keeps me up at night and uh, makes me concerned of, of what will we be able to handle this. I also think there's conflicts where Americans are at happening in a lot of other places, right, in the world. So if there is something occurs there where we have large numbers of whether it's military or it's uh, civilians and they're injured, uh, whether it's a radiation incident or some sort of biological incident, can the United States even absorb them and care for them? We live in a world of just-in-time everything. Um, so supply chain obviously was not very, did not function very well during COVID. And in fact, we're still struggling um, with a lot of things. So in many ways, I'm really worried about, will we learn anything and will we take any action that's meaningful or will it simply be yet another thing that gets forgotten? So. Yeah, I agree with you. Our, our memory seems to be short, especially when it comes time to fund things when you don't think you necessarily need to fund them because nothing's going on at that particular moment. So I hope that we learn something from this, but I agree with you. I share, I share that concern. So you mentioned a, a trip to Africa as part of this job. So where in the world has this role taken Shelly Schwedholm? <laughs> well, you know, it's given me a lot of opportunities to do things I never uh, would have imagined. So, um, yeah, we, on behalf of the Global Center for Health Security, we took a couple of teams, two different years apart, uh, to Lagos, Nigeria, part of our West African International uh, Mission, and did just basic training, right? Even just safe injection practices. So, one, you know, they spoke the truth. They said, well, we don't have enough um, 
needles. So we just do one, then they take the syringe off, then they put the new syringe on. And so it's like, you know, so one needle, one syringe, you know, one time um, and practice it. And then we had them practice PPE, donning and doffing. And so that was a very rewarding experience. And we've actually heard from some of them that it helped them prepare a lot for COVID as well as, you know, continuing to care for monkeypox cases and loss of fevers. So um, that was one trip. And then I think, you know, when COVID began uh, early on, we were really asked to help um, figure some things out. Uh, and so we went to meatpacking plant, went to uh, 16 of those and um, across the state of Nebraska and really worked with the leaders in those places to add, you know, engineering controls, uh, barriers, <clears throat> work with them on administrative controls, such as screening and masking and all sorts of different strategies. Um, so those were, were very challenging uh, environments, a lot of diverse cultural languages. Uh, so even getting information, you know, to the front lines was really hard. Uh, they had point systems that, you know, uh, rewarded them for coming to work. Well, when you're coming to work and you're not feeling well, that's not good in the midst of a pandemic. And then we did some work also in shelters and correctional facilities. And then I think, you know, one of the most heartbreaking um, environments and one of the most rewarding at the same time was going into the long-term care facility. So we hit about 75 of those. Uh, so I kept did a lot of the work, you know, boots on the ground via the phone and provided a lot of, you know, education and training materials and resources and consultation. And then um, we had a team that then went in and did um, hands-on with them. You know, maybe it was PPE training, maybe it was helping them set up their zone. You know, no long-term care facility is the same as the next. And in many cases, these folks were seeing people die right and left. Um, I remember meeting one uh, nurse who uh, pulled her RV into the parking lot because she wasn't gonna let her staff on nights be there alone. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. So we were yeah. able to keep, you know, the keep fatality ratio in Nebraska pretty low you know, like at the 1% mark. And I, I really think a lot of those efforts early on by a lot of different groups made, made a huge impact. It seems like the worst times bring out the best in people for the most part. Yeah. Yeah, it so, certainly seems like from just that discussion that, uh, you know, America's health really is what's impacted globally. So global health is going to be where we have to look going forward is we really need to pay attention to what's going on elsewhere in the world and do our best to support healthcare everywhere in order to keep even Americans well as time goes forward. That's very true, Dr. Starlin, because even if you think about vaccination, right? We live in a global society. So just getting the United States vaccinated, just getting Nebraska vaccinated, just getting Douglas County vaccinated is not going to ever solve, you know, completely what's going on everywhere in the world and keep us from seeing new variants and, and new issues of concern. So it really does mean a uh, full um, view of the world in a different way. 
Yeah. So we have a lot of listeners out there that may be fairly new in their medical career or trying to figure out what they want to do. Um, if they were to listen to this podcast and decide that emergency planning was really interesting, um, what would be some tips that you would have for them? Yeah, so they can start local, right? So if they're still in school, ask their uh, school leaders, you know, what are our plans for this, this, and this? Um, if they want to think about if they're in healthcare now and they're thinking about, you know, wanting to move into this career, then they should talk to their emergency management person and say, can I help? You know, is there anything that I might be able to like step in and, and listen or learn? Um, we also do have a, um, program here at UNO and like we have interns that come and spend time with us uh, in emergency management. So that's a, a career path that some people can take. And I believe our College of Public Health also has a emergency preparedness uh, certificate program. So there's lots of ways to get involved, but it's mostly just finding who is that person in your organization or your business uh, that does it today and just uh, seeing if you can spend a few minutes talking to them about how to get involved. We need everybody involved. It's not just a person who does emergency management. We all have an accountability to it. That's some great advice. And I am going to go out on a limb here and say that you probably don't get many volunteers on a daily basis that, <laughs> that step up and say, hey, let me help. You know, I do get a few and we've got a really, uh, I feel like strong decentralized model here in at least our organization, you know, where a lot of the leaders have accountabilities in the incident command structure or, you know, on the decon team or whatever it is, you know, there's just lots of opportunities and ways to get involved. That's great. Yeah, it's awesome. Just like you said, just raise your hand. There's opportunities and, and, and it may come knocking uh, like it has for some of us. Otherwise, you may have to search it out. But there's definitely ways that I think everybody can make a difference, as you said. Right. Totally agree. And you know what? Even all of our newfound knowledge across the board in infection prevention and control, if that can reduce one hospital acquired infection going forward, that's a win, right? So now we all know things we can do to improve infection control at the bedside. That's right. Practice hand hygiene, right, Dr. Sterling? <laughs> yeah, it's never wrong. You're never wrong. If, if you don't nope. know what to say, don't know what to do next, <laughs> reaching for that alcohol sanitizer will never be viewed as a wrong answer. Now you might have to, but then you can get your, get your, the, you know, little gerbils rolling around in your brain to figure out what's next, but at least it gives you a minute to take a breath, right? Yeah. Good advice. <laughs> uh, so do you have any questions for us, Shelly? We, we greatly appreciate you being on with us. This has been awesome. I think our learners are going to learn a lot about uh, uh, what you do every day and, and thanks for sharing your knowledge. Well, I've learned a lot from Sarah in the dental world and Rick, I've known you for many years. So um, I could ask you all these same questions and you would have just as much uh, great advice. So, Yeah. Well, thank you very much for being on. Uh, you know, it, I, you know, hopefully we're not dealing with a, 
you know, influenza pandemic or something like that on top of this. And, right. and thankfully, we're not in New Orleans. And I hope all those people down there are doing well, because they have another health disaster on top of the pandemic. Uh, so, you know, we, we have to be thankful for what we have and try to help as much as we can. And uh, we certainly appreciate having you on. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much, Shelley. For our listeners out there, thanks for joining us today. We hope that you enjoyed the interview with Shelly. And um, if you don't mind, go give us a like and follow on Twitter and a five-star review if you want to share this with your friends. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Dirty Drinks. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends if they enjoy Dirty Drinks.